Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. You can have inner peace and clarity even in the midst of chaos. Welcome to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with Phil Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm honored and delighted to be hosting this special series, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. <laughs> Our goal is to bring you expert advice and guidance for remaining spiritually secure and strong able to find joy and purpose even in the midst of the most challenging times. Not just this unprecedented pandemic we're all going through together, but anytime you're shocked by the trials and tribulations of life in this crazy world. I've lined up a stellar list of guests for the series, all wise, compassionate, experienced, spiritual teachers from a broad range of traditions and faiths. I encourage you to listen closely, pay attention to what they have to say, and write down the practices that resonate the most with you. There will be many of them, so you'll be able to develop a repertoire or an inventory of practices to draw from at different times in your life when you need a spiritual boost and a way to reconnect with our divine source. We all have within us a sanctuary of peace and a fortress of strength, not something we have to find or build. It's already present at the core of our being. It's our truest, deepest, highest self. It's our essence, it's what we are, and all the methods from all the spiritual traditions have the sole purpose of reuniting us or awakening us to what we truly are, eternal beings. Engaged here in an earthly curriculum to realize our highest spiritual possibilities. And the more we connect with that infinite reality within us, the more peace, harmony, wisdom, power, goodness, we bring into our lives and the better equipped we are to face our challenges and take action to make the world a little less crazy. <laughs> that said, let me introduce today's guest. Andrew Harvey is a renowned religious scholar, writer, teacher, the author of more than 40 books, including The Direct Path, the Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism, and his latest, co-authored with Carolyn Baker, Radical Regeneration, Birthing the New Human in the Age of Extinction. Andrew is an expert on the world's mystical traditions. He's taught at Oxford, Cornell, and other places, and is the founder and director of the Institute of Sacred Activism. Andrew, welcome. Phil, I can't think of anyone I'd love to be talking about these things more with than you. And nothing could be more important than encouraging people and inspiring people at this immensely challenging moment to really acquire a steady, 
deep spiritual practice because I know that you and I both believe that it's only through connecting with your deep self that you can find the stamina and the peace and the passion and the energy and the joy to rise to the really vast challenges of our erupting world crisis and the global dark night we're going through. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Um, tell me, let me start with a personal question. Um, how have you encountered life in this last year of pandemic did you did anything about your own personal response to the challenge surprise you what have you learned yourself the truth is phil that the pandemic has absolutely galvanized me on the one hand it's caused me immense distress <laughs> looking at the suffering that's everywhere, especially since that suffering took place at the end of the appalling Trump administration. But on the other hand, I recognize the pandemic as the beginning of a terrifying global dark night, which is also the birth canal of a new embodied humanity. And I pledged myself at a deeper level than I imagined possible to pouring out whatever I could to be of help to people, to give them a map and to give them the kinds of practices that could sustain them and help them birth in themselves the divine new human that I believe is the secret goal of this astounding, chaotic, terrifying process. Did you come upon the idea of the new book, Radical Regeneration, as a, a response to that? Completely. What happened was is that Carolyn Baker and I have written three books together. We wrote a book called Return to Joy, which is a book proclaiming the necessity of connecting with the joy of the divine self that we all have so as to rise to the challenges of the time. Then we wrote a book called Savage Grace, which was in the early days of the Trump administration, warning of the growth of fascism, which is now obviously a great danger to America and the rise of authoritarianism is exploding everywhere. Then we wrote a book on our particular passion, which is animals and the horrific situation with animals, but also a book about encouraging and inspiring people to really turn up and have sacred relationships with animals as we do, called Saving Animals for Ourselves. And then the pandemic hit, and both of us had exactly the same response. And that response was, Carly is dancing. There's a tremendous dark night exploding, but this is not only a time of terror and anxiety and chaos, it's also a time of birth. And we must come together now and bring together our mutual wisdom and our mutual experience and our mutual practice to offer people a map through this dreadful time, a map that they can realize in the intimate core of their lives so as to feel real hope, real passion, real energy at the moment when all of those things seem so threatened. So we plunged in, we wrote a 300 page book in about two months, but then we boiled it down to 120 pages because <laughs> we really wanted as many people as possible to get access to it. And <laughs> the most amazing reaction. 
because this book is really our attempt to offer a map through the dark night, drawing on the great mystical traditions and the great mystic masters of the dark night, and to offer a vision drawn from the great evolutionary mystics of the new human that is emerging through the death of the old one, and to offer central, glowing, inspiring teachings on tantra, on intimacy, on nobility and magnanimity, and on sacred activism that can truly, deeply, wildly, calmly empower people. So we've had an amazing time doing this. And I also <laughs> brought out a whole new 365 Kabir translations and put them on my website so that people could have Kabir as an accompaniment oh, to this let, world. Time let's Kabir come back to Kabir. Kabir. I love Kabir. Oh, let's God. come back to him later. Um, but uh, as a writer of books, I have to bow to you and uh, commiserate with you. I've also had to cut a lot of uh, pages from my drafts. But more than 50% is uh, pretty uh, impressive, Andrew, I have to say. Um, you know, Mark Twain said the most wonderful thing, which I'm sure you know. He says, I wrote you a 10-page letter because I didn't have time to write you a 5-page right. one. I love that. It, and it's very true. It's uh, but in your, in your uh, explanation, you threw out, you name-dropped Kali. So yeah. for, for the sake of our listeners who might have heard you say that and not know what you mean. Could you please explain what you mean by Kali is dancing? Oh, my friends, now you've <laughs> opened Pandora's box. <laughs> but that's fine. Kali is a Hindu name for the goddess, the mother, the embodied godhead. And Kali in Hinduism represents the ferocious love of the mother that presents itself in destruction that leads to new creation. And Kali is one name for this dark feminine force that is essential part of the mother. She's also a force of tremendous love because the destruction that she's doing is not punishment, it's renewal, regeneration. And there are other names for Kali in other traditions. In Buddhism, this force is called Vajrayogini. In Christianity, this force is honored and revered as the Black Madonna. I have a particular passion for this force because my whole life has been dedicated to the Divine Mother. And my understanding and experience of the mother is that she, her love expresses itself in two main ways. One, of course, nourishing and tender and amazingly inspiring and encouraging and revelatory. And another, just as important, destructive, ferocious, destroyer of illusions, destroyer of fantasies, so as to annihilate what is false and help you find what is real and true and nourishing. So the, the light and the dark sides of the mother, you could call them that, work together. And Kali is the most glowing and revolutionary name for that wonderful dark force. In Aurobindo's great book, Aurobindo is the greatest evolutionary philosopher the world has ever had. He writes in his book, The Mother, 
that there are four aspects of the mother that you need to connect with the wide spacious tender aspect which he calls maheshwari the glowing opulent abundant aspect which he calls mahalakshmi the patient artistic connector and creator of forms which he calls saraswati but the most important force he feels that we need to connect with in our time is Kali because she gives us the passion, the intensity, the clarity that we desperately need if we're going to conspire with her destruction to recreate ourselves and the world. And in the Hindu tradition, which you and, and I revere and understand and try to emulate in many ways and integrate into our work, this age that we're in is called Kali Yuga. It is the age in which Kali is progressively dancing more and more fiercely, not to punish us, but to help us get with reality and become humble co-creators of a new reality. So that's a very, very swift definition of why Kali is so sacred to me and so sacred, I think, to this whole experience. Andrew, people listening uh, to you now for the first time, and if they see the <clears throat> titles of your, the title of your new book, they will see paradox. You yes. sound both optimistic and pessimistic. The oh, no. I'm, neither, <clears throat> I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Uh -huh. Real mystics are realists. And real mystics combine in the depths of themselves what Jesus called the wisdom of the serpent and the innocence of the dove. And that means that a true mystic who has been initiated into reality sees on the one hand the divine light in all of its glory, in all of its evolutionary possibility, in all of its absolute timeless eternal magnificence and knows himself or herself one with that light and all beings one with that light and knows that the possibilities that come from aligning with that light are truly infinite. But at the same time, that light, once you experience it, illumines everything that is dark in the world and in yourself and in the crisis that's exploding all over the world and shows you directly what needs to be dealt with. And if you don't have the wisdom that comes from illusionless confrontation with the real, you are really screwed because the crises that are erupting now will then end in human extinction. But if you only have that, you will be paralyzed beyond all possibility and it will be very difficult for you to continue that's why you so need the innocence of the dove the visionary understanding so i'm neither a pessimist nor an optimist i'm a realist i face the light every day i see it i am aligned with it my work is dedicated to the birth of a new humanity but i'm not at all illusion and about anything that's happening. We need to confront the darkness in ourselves and in the world, and we need to rise with the power of the light to help the light birth a new world through us. Is that what you mean in the epigraph to your new book, which I found fascinating? <clears throat> to quote you, the, the specific medicine for the shock of despair is the deeper shock of meaning. 
Absolutely. Excellent. Well, despair is an honorable reaction to what's going on. It is very scary. We have five major crises at least erupting at the same time. A pandemic, which we're still not in control of, climate collapse, economic disparity and inequality of an obscene kind. We have a massive massacre of the animals going on, a million species on the edge of extinction. And we have a rise in authoritarianism in America and all over the world. And if you add to that what Paul Levy calls wetiko, a soul sickness, a despair, a paralysis in the face of all of these things, we have the perfect cocktail for an annihilatory crisis. But truth has the two faces that I have described. On the one hand, it casts an absolutely illusionless light on this horror that's happening and forces us to confront it. And on the other hand, it constantly reveals to us, if we love it, our divine consciousness and the extraordinary powers of renewal and regeneration that that consciousness gives us access to, as you said so beautifully in your introduction. So the only recipe for despair is to get down with the real. And the only way to get down with the real, the eternal, the timeless, with all of its peace, but also all of its evolutionary passion and energy, the only way to get down with the real is to plunge very much more deeply than any of us have ever imagined plunging into spiritual practice and put what we find in the unfolding revelations that we're given into what I've called sacred activism, into sacredly inspired, wise, non-violent, urgent, radical action. That is what my work is about, and that's what I have been dedicated to now for 30 years. Now, there was another line in your book, in the first chapter, that struck me and also carries with it a certain uh, paradox. You write that living free is living free of both despair and hope. Yes. Most, pe most people think of hope as, a, as an antidote to, to despair. And you're saying we need to be free of hope as well. Tell, tell us why you say that. The antidote to despair isn't hope. The antidote to despair is being hope. The problem with a lot of seekers is that they want hope on the cheap. They want to believe that everything's going to be fine, everything's going to work out. This is a disaster because it keeps them passive. When you really take divine embodiment seriously, when you truly awaken, you don't need either despair or hope because you're living in the real as a hologram of the real, radiating compassion, radiating joy, radiating precise and wise help. That's what I mean. Very good. Ramon um, Pashi didn't have, he wasn't in despair because he was living as the self. He wasn't in any kind of false hope because he didn't need hope. Living in the real is glorious enough and founds you, grounds you and founds you in the eternal. And from that glorious, calm, humble place, 
you work tirelessly to help and serve others. And you become hope. The Dalai Lama, I've spoken to the Dalai Lama on so many occasions. The Dalai Lama doesn't despair, but he doesn't have an ounce or a shred of false hope. He knows exactly where we are, but that doesn't prevent him being hope, loving, walking, giving, whatever happens. And that's what true seekers of God are challenged to become. In the book, you have uh, early on 10 brief suggestions for navigating turbulent times. So let's switch to some practical stuff. The first one has to do with specifically the pandemic and being safe in it. Uh, and the second is about taking care of your health. Um, and then you have some other specific suggestions. Um, Let's start with fill your life with inspiration and beauty. Oh, yes. What's more important than inspiration at a time like this? This is something I myself have learned during this pandemic. I've never needed the great mystical poets like Rumi and Kabir and Hadovich of Antwerp more than I have in this time. And I've read them with an intensity that I never had read them before. And they give me every day encouragement and joy. I'm a great lover of classical music. So in this period, I've been listening to Bach and Beethoven and Schubert with ears absolutely hungry to drink in every conceivable power of beauty. I also love all of the arts and I also love beautiful documentaries about people like, for example, the other night I was seeing a documentary about Twyla Sharp, whom I admire tremendously as one of the great modern choreographers. And just watching that extraordinary woman in her 70s work on a piece for the internet and go out of her mind and come back into her mind and really wrestle with the fundamentals of how dance can inspire us, that was immensely inspiring. We must, all of us, drink from the great wells of inspiration that are offered us by the arts, by the great mystical poets, by the great mystical texts of all traditions, and by the great teachers of the past and of the present in all of those realms, because when we do align ourselves with that outrageous, brave beauty, then we become outrageously brave and ready for bear. Great. Um, <clears throat> I will now watch the Twyla Tharp show that I uh, recorded and uh, remember your inspirational words. I watched it's the one. It's so wonderful, Phil. She said, dancers know that there is only one way, and that is forward. I love that. <laughs> and that's I, for all of us dancers, because we're all dancers in our own ragged way. And last night I watched uh, an inspiring documentary by, about Josephine Baker. And oh, I love Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> taking her leopard around with the diamond bracelet. Yeah. She, and the way she ended her life after all of this wild shenanigans by looking after orphans in her crumbling chateau. She was an amazing human being. I knew a lot of her friends in Paris and oh. I God, what a person. Okay, before we get too carried away, uh, we will come back to uh, Andrew Harvey in a minute. We have to take a brief, a brief break 
and we'll be right back. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome back to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with your host, Phil Goldberg. Welcome back. I'm here with Andrew Harvey. We were talking about the importance of uh, being inspired by beauty uh, and um, other sources of inspiration during difficult times, in addition to uh, music and poetry and art. Um, Another suggestion Andrew has in his book, Radical Regeneration, is to spend 20 minutes a day in nature if you can. Andrew, a lot of people listening will live in urban environments. Of course, I do myself, but there are parks. Mm -hmm. I do every single day. I go to my favorite little jewel of a park near me, which is about 150 yards away, and that is a park filled with squirrels and children and beautiful old trees, and just sitting there silently and loving the grass, loving the squirrels, loving the trees, reconnects me with the great natural mother, the mother of nature. And that gives one hope, gives one strength. Sometimes I take my shoes off, like Matthew Fox does. He told me about this every day. He goes to his park in Oakland, and he takes his shoes off and just walks on the grass and feels the power of the mother coming up through the soles of his feet. And I've been emulating my 80-year-old friend. My experience is that when people spend time in nature, and I relate to that because I grew up in a very urban environment in New York, and there was a big, beautiful park in Brooklyn that uh, just any time we went, life changed. Yes. And and he, I'm, uh, I have a similar experience now living in L.A. But one of the things I, I believe happens when you spend time in nature is your attitude toward the climate crisis uh, changes. Absolutely. Tell, t- talk to us about that. Because about 10 years ago, I was sitting in my favorite park, and suddenly I was overcome by terrible dread because I suddenly saw in a flash of vision that everything I was looking at that I was loving so much was threatened. And that plunged me into my book, The Hope. It was one of the inspirations for writing that book as urgently as I could, because that experience just overwhelmed me with grief and actually led to a very profound exploration of all of the dark shadows this crisis is creating in us, which was I, which made me grateful for that experience. Whenever you are really overwhelmed by the beauty of nature, as I have been in Namibia, which is my favorite place on earth, which I go to whenever I can afford it, to just drink in the primal, original world, because Namibia is naked desert foaming with animals in astounding grandeur. Whenever I go there and to the other places where I worship nature, I feel on the one hand the tremendous strength of the mother and on the other hand the agony of what we're doing to her. And she gives me the strength to feel the agony and then to dedicate myself anew to doing whatever I can with the last years of my life to rouse people to defend the mother and to defend the environment. 
Which brings us to another uh, point you make in that early part of your book, which is uh, to take the time to grieve. Um, there's a lot of grief. <clears throat> Many yeah. of us have lost loved ones and um, were deprived of the usual uh, collective rituals uh, for <coughs> that, help, that help with the grieving. Um, <clears throat> and even if we were lucky enough not to have suffered deep personal loss, um, there's heartbreak uh, just in the news every day. Absolutely. What do you tell people, and I'm sure people come to you who are suffering loss, what do you tell them about grief and the uh, the importance of uh, taking the time to, to grieve? I tell them three things. The first is to greet their grief as holy, to treat it as sacred, to not try and repress it. Because if you go into your grief and allow it, you'll find that grief is a river that will take you to the shore of a deeper realization, a deeper understanding, and a deeper commitment to put love into action. That's the first thing. The second thing I tell them, and I really tell them, I advise them strongly, is to create from your friends, as I have done, a grief circle. I have a group of four or five friends here in Oak Park, and we have created a conscious grief circle in which we meet every Sunday and we speak about the anguish mm -hmm. feeling at the, at the economic situation, at the suffering so many people are going through, at the horrific news about climate change. And then as we really empty our grief into an invisible well, we pray over it by saying the rosary so that we integrate that grief and deepen our love for the world. The third thing I say to people once they've been integrated those first two things is to say that the greatest key to finding your mission as a sacred activist, as someone who is prepared to stand up and actually do something from an inspired mystical point of view with all of the practices available to you, the first thing that you need to do is to connect with your most profound heartbreak. Because if you do, you will rise from that connection to actually commit yourself to doing something about it. So I say not follow your bliss alone, but follow your heartbreak too, because your heartbreak will lead you to the cause that you'll be able to give yourself to. You'll find that in the center of heartbreak is a fountain of deathless passion, which will never run dry. My heartbreak and my personal activism is all about animals because for me, our massacre of the animals, our genocide of the animals is almost the most atrocious thing we're up to. And I have let that grief take me over, but not paralyze me and make me an advocate for animal rights. And I know so many people all over the world who are allowing that to take them over and doing exactly the same thing. But there's so many things to be heartbroken about. Which breaks your heart the most is the one that the divine is summoning you to do something about. So grief has immense mystical power and significance. And the tragedy is that it absolutely represses grief and think it's an illness instead of a revelation leading to a mature love and real action. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, one of the big lessons of my life, uh, my mother died very young. It was tragic. And um, 
years I was 20 or 21 decades later I still found myself saddened at times grieving at times incomplete with it and thought there's something wrong with me and um after some deep reflection and uh, spending time with wise people, I realized you don't lose that grief. You, you allow it to resurrect you in certain ways. And that the, the, the prolonged grief is just a form of love. Absolutely. And, you, and you, would not, you would not want to lose that. Right. <laughs> so could, do, you, do you agree? Of course, it's the essence of truth. I think the two things that come to mind, one of my favorite remarks of St. Francis, when he says, love suffers like a bird sings. That is such an extraordinary mm. statement. You cannot love anyone or anything or any cause or the world without suffering because they come together and the suffering is part of love. The second statement is by Rumi when he says the grapes of my body can only become wine after the winemaker tramples me. That grief <laughs> is one of the ways in which the divine uses, one of the methods the divine uses to trample your self-absorption and to make you human and to breed deeper, wilder, more focused compassion in you. How could you ever really pledge yourself to an authentic mystical path, let alone to becoming a sacred activist, if you haven't let yourself grieve over the state of humanity, over your own state, and over what is happening on every level in the world. Now, you've mentioned sac sacred activism a number of times. You've, you started an institute called uh, the Institute of Sacred Activism. Yes. It's it's also an important uh, component of your uh, latest book, and you've brought it up several times here. Explain the term first, and before we get into some of the details of what you're recommending, why the term well, sacred activism? Know, Phil, my book, The Hope, started a global movement of sacred activism. I it's now all over the world and there are hundreds of thousands of people who call themselves sacred activists. What I understood about 15 years ago was that there was a birthing force here available to us. And this birthing force was a fusion of deep mystical and spiritual understanding and love with wise, spiritually guided, nonviolent, urgent action. And then I looked at the 20th century and realized that so many people had embodied this force in amazing ways to give us inspiration. Gandhi, of course, who unseated the British Empire through galvanizing this force. Lech Walesa in Solidarność in Poland, who unseated the Russians in this way. The Dalai Lama, who exemplifies it. Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu coming together and really bringing in peace and reconciliation after the end of apartheid to build a new society in South Africa. Jane Goodall in her extraordinary work. And the definitions I give are two. The first one is a user-friendly definition, and that is that when you unite profound spiritual practice with clear, wise, radical, nonviolent action, you birth a third force in yourself, which is a holy force, which is blessed by the divine, and which empowers you to act in transformative ways with great wisdom and great compassion in the world to serve the world and to serve the birth of the new humanity. The second definition is more esoteric but is very profoundly passionate and real for me and for many people all over the world of all religions and non-religions for many true seekers 
and it came to me through a vision. And in this vision, I saw two rivers of fire racing towards the horizon and meeting in an atomic explosion, but not a destructive explosion, an explosion of different colors lights that were unbelievably gorgeous and beautiful and also unbelievably powerful. And I heard the voice, I think it was for me, it was the voice of the Christ. And what the voice said was, when the river of the passion of the mystic for God meets the river of the passion of the activist for justice, our new force of fire is born in the human heart, mind, soul, body. And with this force, everything can be changed, even at this late hour. That's what the voice said. And what I realized I was being shown is that sacred activism is one of the ways in which the new humanity not only will could potentially transform all conditions of life on Earth and all structures of oppression, but it's also the force that will enable this evolutionary impulse that we celebrate in radical regeneration to flower because what we're saying in radical regeneration, which is what I began to say in the hope, is that this is a global dark night. It could result either in extinction or transfiguration. And if you want to go for the birth, my friends, you need to do three things. You need to align with the laws of the dark night, which require surrender and humility and giving up to God for the results that God wants. You need to align with the evolutionary understanding of the great evolutionary mystics that the dark night is a birth canal for a new humanity and you need to turn up as a sacred activist because that helps you unify heart, mind, soul and body in calm and passionate compassion and calm and inspired action. So a whole new human being is born. So that's sacred activism and that's why it's so central, not only to my vision, but to the Christ consciousness, to Mahayana Buddhism, to all the great mystical systems that understand at the deepest level that the new human, the divine human, the enlightened human, is not only one that is a human being that has divine awareness, but one that puts divine awareness into action to transform the world. Andrew, not everybody, as we know, uh, is inclined to uh, be a a, a Nelson Mandela in their in their environment. Uh, no. People have different different uh, degrees of of uh, passion and different you know different obligations, duties, inclinations, right. and so forth. What do you tell people who say, "I'd love to help you know heal the world, Andrew, but I have enough on my plate uh, about what they can do." I'm, first thing I would say is I completely get it and I understand. The second thing I would say is that you're not going to be given the 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 uh, you're not going to be given any alternative because the crisis that is exploding now and is going to get worse is going to compel you to make a choice. Are you going to let it explode and potentially wipe the human race off the face of the earth, or are you going to realize that this age is one that is asking you? to turn up in whatever way is most natural to you, to plunge much more deeply into spiritual practice and to take very much more seriously your obligations as a citizen of your country and as a citizen of your world. There's no way out to this challenge, but everybody can rise to this challenge 
in different ways that suit their own gifts and temperaments, but nobody is secure from it. It's a wonderful challenge. Stop hiding in your responsibilities and start claiming your divine consciousness and the obligations and responsibilities that that consciousness has. That's not a user-friendly reply, but it's <laughs> a user-friendly time. What have you found people in that situation who have limited time uh, have done to make a contribution uh, and at the same time uh, honor their uh, private obligations and duties um, and their own sense of uh, what's appropriate for them? What kind of things have people been doing? Well, first of all, a lot of people who've heard this message and been inspired by it and are in that position have become very much more aware of what's really happening. They've informed themselves and stepped up as citizens and voted for what they want to see happen and taken that voting very much more seriously. Secondly, a lot of people I have inspired have become advocates in their own way when they have the time for the cause that they truly, truly care about. Thirdly, Many people have undertaken the challenge that I pose in the hope of creating what I call networks of grace, eight or 15, between eight and 15 people whom they know and love, who you may meet with to inspire each other and to do something local in their local world. Fourthly, a lot of people who have really heard this message and are very heavily busy with all the obligations you can imagine have decided to tithe their income and devote real money to helping those on the front lines. Fifthly, those who have truly said to me, look, I'm not an activist by temperament, but I deeply admire what activists are doing and I want to support them, but I don't have any money. I've said to them, make sure you pray for the success of the great heroic activists on every level out there. Prayer has an immense force of blessing and of courage and of strength to sustain their actions in the face of overwhelming pain. So all of those ways are ways in which anyone, whatever their obligations, you and I have immense obligations, that doesn't stop us from turning up and doing the work even to our advanced and wild old age. So get the <laughs> program and start doing something in any way that I've just suggested that truly, truly meets your temperament and gifts. But realize that you must do something now. You have to turn up as a citizen of the world, realizing that everything is at stake and calmly, calmly dedicating what time you can, what resources you can, and what inner practice you do to the transformation of humanity and the saving of the planet for the birth of a new humanity. Do you find, as I have, and, and uh, in my book, which is the same title as this this show, um, I write about the importance of service, and I looked into some of the research, and it turns out that the mystics were all correct. Uh, they, they've been <laughs> surprised. They, surprised. They, when they say that. Uh, service, selfless service, what in India is called seva, uh, yes. that in every spiritual tradition has calls upon its people to, to do something of service, but it also serves the server. And there's a lot of research that demonstrates that people who do give some service in their lives uh, are actually healthier and live longer and so forth. Could you uh, address course, that? You know Mathieu Ricard's great book on altruism, in which he brings together all the latest research 
done all over the world, which just proves something that the mystics have always known, which is that if you're paralyzed by despair, if you're unhappy, serve. And you suddenly find yourself feeling joy and suddenly find yourself far healthier and far more inspired. This is the truth that is known by all the mystical traditions and especially emphasized, of course, in the, in the real Christian tradition by the original Jesus, who made it the center of his message. So it's very important for people to understand that service is not something that you do out of guilt and shame and terror and fear. Service is the natural flowing out of receiving divine love, realizing that you are part of that divine love and wanting to share it with others and if you do share it with others you become so much happier more fulfilled yourself and so much more lovable so um we don't have to give up our narcissism <laughs> to provide service for the world and um, we can that's what the dalai lama calls enlightened selfishness which is such a fantastic phrase yes. You don't be selfish, but be enlightened, selfish, and serve, and you'll be happy. That's one of his <laughs> greatest jokes. That's great. Um, in uh, Radical Regeneration, you have uh, a, sec a section uh, called uh, Our Sacred Duty, and you <clears throat> cite five lessons uh, regarding our uh, sacred duty at this this time in the uh, in the history of humanity. The first of those lessons is life is hard. Yes. Tell us about that. Well, life is hard. Okay. We're dying and we're surrounded by terrible suffering and grief. And even if you are rich, which neither of us are, <laughs> you have all kinds of psychological traumas from your past to deal with. So facing that life is dukkha, as the Buddha said, has a streak of deep, deep suffering and incompletion in it is absolutely essential. You've got to wake up for that. And um, the other four were equally surprising when I when I have to confess, when I saw uh, the heading five lessons, I did not expect one life is hard and uh, two, you are not important. Um, no, we're not. That is, of course, terribly <laughs> difficult to say to Americans or the West or Westerners, but nobody is important. The Dalai Lama says one of his favorite practices is to be in a crowd of 5,000 people and to imagine himself not there. Not much would change. <laughs> and that's very, very humbling, but it's also very important that you get it because once you get that, then you humble up and realize, oh my God, I better find out who I really am, not this desperate importance seeker, but what I really am, which is, of course, the divine self. That is... Which is very important. That's very important. <laughs> You're not, there's not two divine selves. There's only one divine self appearing in millions of different bodies. There's a saying, oh, how did it go? I was once told that the, uh, uh, in the Jewish tradition, there's a saying that um, everybody should keep a note in one uh, in the right pocket and one in the left. And the one in the one pocket says, you are the center of the universe, the most important thing in God's creation. Yes. And in the other, it's you're just a speck in an infinite, you know, explosion of I dust. Love that. <laughs> That's so true, because if you really listen to the great mystics, they're telling you that you are absolutely nothing as you are, because you're just fantasy ridden, illusion ridden. But if you get rid of that 
fantasy of being important in worldly terms, you discover your true importance, which is as a hologram of the entire universe. And at this, you yes. love everyone and serve everyone. So. And at the same time, in our own realm of uh, our little corner of the universe, we do have an important impact on the people we associate with and the people, whatever impact we have in the world, can be considered terribly important, can it? It can, only though, if it's really a conscious mm. impact, because unfortunately, most of us are shadow ridden and the impact that we have is ambiguous at best. That's why it's so essential to take a spiritual path and clean up your act. Andrew, we only have a short period of, of time left. Um, in the midst of all this uh, crazy apocalyptic uh, time we're in, um, many of us also see positive signs oh, yes. uh, and lessons being learned. What, what are you finding out there? Well, my whole work is dedicated to the birth. And so I have birth eyes. I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it in the unbelievable passion that fuels Black Lives Matter. I'm seeing it in the way in which women are standing up against patriarchal sexual male harassment in the Me Too movement in what's happening now in Australia. I'm seeing it in the extraordinary growth in real citizenship that's happening in America in the face of growing fascism and violence. I'm seeing it in the spread of environmental consciousness amongst the young. I'm seeing it in the extraordinary tenderness and open-mindedness of so many young people. I have a goddaughter who just continually astounds me by the range of her tolerance and wisdom. I have a young Pakistani trainer who's trying to rip me into shape. He's 24, and he takes my breath away by his generosity of spirit and by his understanding <laughs> and by his openness of spirit. Andrew, we have to we have to cut it short, I'm afraid. I'm glad we're, well, we're this ending on this positive uh, note. It was all positive. Yes, it was. And we there's much to much to find that's encouraging, and uh, I encourage our listeners to look deeply into uh, Andrew's work on sacred activism, his new book, Radical Regeneration. Join me next week. We'll have another wise and wonderful guest. Meantime, you can find me at my website, philipgoldberg.com. Uh, read my books, especially Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times. Listen to my... I love that title. <laughs> and listen that's to my... My podcast, Spirit Matters, which has about 250 or so interviews with wonderful people, including Andrew, more than once, and others uh, who you will uh, learn from. In the meantime, be well, uh, be strong, stay safe. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.